Okay, class, today we will be talking about Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, he's mostly found in the book of Daniel. Neb. We don't really know how to spell his name. Actually, I just don't know how to spell his name, and that's a mouthful. We're just going to call him Chad. This guy was definitely a jerk in the Bible. And in 586 B.C., or for you more modern historians, B.C., E, he decided, hey, I'm sick of what the Jews are doing. I'm sick of the people living in Jerusalem. They stopped paying me tribute, so I'm going to go wipe them out. And that's exactly what he does. He goes over, he takes over Jerusalem, he destroys the temple, he destroys the walls, he kills a lot of the people, <laughs> slaughters them, like any good jerk king would do in Old Testament times. He says, I'm going to build a huge statue. I don't know what the statue was, but it was 90 feet high, 6 feet wide. It was gold. And instead of saying, hey, let me build this awesome statue, he's like, no, I'm going to make you worship the statue. So I need you to fall on your faces every time you basically hear the bell, and you need to worship this thing. And there were three Jews, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were like, no, this guy's a nut job. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to worship the one true God, not this fake image of whatever Chad puts up there. If you don't bow down to my statue, I'm going to burn you up in fire. And this fire is going to be so hot, I'm going to turn up the furnace seven times. King Nebuchadnezzar, he's figuratively hot right now. He's like, you know what? These guys aren't bowing down. Toss them into the fire. And in fact, the guys who tossed them into the fire, they died themselves because they were getting too close to the flames. And then to cap off the jerkiness of this guy, he's walking on his the top of his castle, on the top of the walls around his city. And he's like, man, I am awesome. And God says, boom, roasted, you're done. Oh, let me tell you what he has to do. He acts like an ox, he acts like a little cow, and he starts eating grass. And he's walking around. Yeah, he's eating grass. This is super embarrassing for him, the king. They had to go hide him for seven years. He has to act like an ox. He says, you know what, the one true God, he is the one true God. We don't know where he lands after that. He might have continued to worship his gods. He might have worshiped the God of Israel. We don't know. Definitely a mixed bag in scripture. A little bit of a villain. Maybe not a hero, but he repents of his sin. <sighs> Any questions? <laughs> Didn't see that coming, did you? Jake is uh, down teaching the same lesson in our kids' ministry right now. Oh, he's not. No, he's not. So I heard a story this past week. Muhammad Ali, remember this guy, float like a butterfly, sting like a bee, that guy. He's on an airplane. They're flying through the air, hit a bit of turbulence. The pilot does his thing, puts on the fastened seatbelt sign, it's blinking. He doesn't put on his seatbelt. Muhammad Ali, come on, he's got gravitas, right? The stewardess comes by, she looks at him. This wasn't a part of the story, but I, I kind of picture her chomping her gum, kind of a sassy stewardess. She looks at him and she says, uh, the captain put on the seatbelt, I need you to put on, or the sign, put on your seatbelt, please, sir. And he looks at her and he says, Superman don't need no seatbelt. And she doesn't even skip a beat. I love this answer. Well, Superman don't need no plane either. Put on your seatbelt. Pride. I bet that Muhammad Ali, Superman, champion of the world, right? Gravitas. I bet he struggled with pride. That's a humorous story, but the reality is this, that pride in the life of a Christ follower, well, it's not funny. Not really. Have you ever met somebody 
and just kind of from watching them, from observing them, thought to yourself, they're kind of a stuck-up person. I think there might be some pride there. I'm not drawn to that. Or maybe, if you're super honest, you've already done some of that heart work and you've recognized that you struggle with pride a bit. If so, well, welcome to humanity. This is an affliction that is common to men and women. Maybe you've looked at a person like that or you've looked inwardly and you've thought, what a jerk. Well, that's why we're looking at this particular jerk of the Bible in our summer series, Jerks of the Bible. Thank you, Jake. That story of Nebuchadnezzar is a cautionary tale for all of us. Here's the outline of my message today. I'm going to call it 4, 4, and 4. First of all, I want to lean in on that story that we just saw, the story of Nebuchadnezzar. I learned that story when I was four. We're going to dig a little deeper into that story. Then I want to share with you uh, four steps to his jerkiness. There's almost a progression of the jerkiness of pride, and we're going to track that as we look at a closer look at that story. And then I want to wrap up the message by giving you four steps that you can take to overcome it or at least guard your heart against pride. Let's start first with a story that I learned when I was four. By the way, I am still seeking and learning to apply this story. Heard it first when I was four, but I'm still wrestling with it now. This is the story that I want to share with you, the story you heard Jake's version. This is the story that I heard when I was four. And by the way, this is the Bible storybook that I enjoyed when I was a child. Great Bible stories for children, beautifully illustrated. Check this out. My grandpa was a bit of an artist, and he endorsed that for me. I remember sitting on his knee, and he wrote that, and he illustrated that, gave that to me for Christmas in the early 80s. This is what I want to read from today. Daniel interprets the king's dream. King Nebuchadnezzar, Chad, is that what we're calling him? Chad could not sleep at night. He had strange dreams. This happened every night, but when he awoke, he could not remember the dream. If you were here a couple of weeks ago, you heard one of my old college professors, Dr. Tom Ewald, talk about another villain, another jerk of the Bible, Judas. He taught psychology, and I remember sitting in a lecture hall listening to his talking about psychology, and he gave us an assignment. We had to do a dream analysis one time, and I had such a hard time even remembering my dreams because, well, I'm a sound sleeper. I was then, and I still kind of am today. This story is kind of comes full circle because before he preached here on Sunday morning, Don and I had him over for dinner on Saturday night. We enjoyed a great time together, probably because it was top of my mind that night when I went to bed and slept, I woke up in the middle of the night as if I was in college not able to remember the dream and remembering the layers of trying to pull that assignment off. And I told him that the next morning before I preached. I can relate to Nebuchadnezzar in this. I cannot relate to him in this. He sent for his wise men so that they might help him know what his dream meant. But because he could not, they could not, he could not tell them what the dream had been, they could not explain the dream. So Nebuchadnezzar was furious. He ordered that all the wise men of, Net of Babylon should be killed. By this time, Daniel was one of the wise men. When he heard that he and his friends were to be killed, he went 
to the king. He asked for them, or for time rather, to study about the mysterious dream. Here's a picture of King Nebuchadnezzar and all of those wise men cowering in fear. The king agreed. Daniel and his three friends prayed to God for help. That night, God told Daniel the secret. Daniel thanked God in these words. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever. This is a direct quote from Daniel chapter 2, if you want to see it. He is wise. God is wise and powerful. He sends the winter, the spring, the summer, and the autumn. He takes kings away from their thrones and chooses kings. He sees the things that are hidden in darkness, for where he is, there is always light. He teaches, and he gives understanding. I thank the God of my fathers, for he has taught me secret things. Daniel then went to the king and said, There is a God in heaven who can tell secret things. He is telling the king something that is going to happen. You saw, O king, a frightening image standing before you. Its head was made of gold. Its chest and arms were silver. Its sides were brass. Its legs were iron. Its feet were part iron and part clay. As you looked, a stone hit the image on its feet and broke them to pieces. The iron, the clay, the brass, the silver, and the gold were all broken to pieces. The wind carried the pieces away. The stone that struck the image became a great mountain as big as the earth. Then Daniel explained that the head of the gold represented King Nebuchadnezzar. After him, other kingdoms would follow, not quite so strong. But after those kingdoms, God would build a kingdom that would never be destroyed. The head represents Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar is king of Babylon. And looking backwards through the lens of history, well, we're able to see how this dream actually came to fruition. The breast and the arms are silver, represents the Medes and the Persians. If you read to the end of the book of Daniel, you're going to see the transition between this kingdom and this kingdom right there on the pages of Scripture. The belly and the thighs are brass. This is the kingdom of, of, of Greece, right? You've got Philip of Mastodon. You've got his son, Alexander the Great, conquers the whole known world of his time. That's what's going on here. Legs of iron, this is Rome. You've got all oh, the city-states of Rome. And then you've got empire that comes out of that. You've got Caesar, Caesar Augustus. Feet of iron and clay divided nations later on. But then you've got a rock, the stone from God of heaven, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Actually, I saw a picture this past week as I was thinking about that of another artist's rendition of all of that statue being toppled to the ground. And I love this sign right here. You might not be able to read it. It says, do not climb. Why? Because if I was a kid, when I was reading this, I would definitely have wanted to play and climb on that. When the king heard this, he fell on his face before Daniel. Your God is greater than all the kings of earth. He gave Daniel gifts and made him governor over Babylon and chief wise man of the kingdom. The king allowed Daniel to have Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego as his assistants. A story I learned when I was four. I'm still seeking to apply it today. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, 586, he conquers God's people in Israel, carries them almost a thousand miles away into captivity. Incredible. We looked at those pictures. Can I just say this? 
in a world of Nebuchadnezzar's. Let me kind of skip to the application. In a world filled with Nebuchadnezzar's power-hungry folks, maybe you serve a boss like that who struggles with pride. In a world of Nebuchadnezzar's, be a Daniel with humility. Let God, God's spirit, if you're a believer that lives inside of you, just leak through you. The world desperately needs to see him through you. Speaking of this, how are you doing? Can I just ask you the question, how are things going with your one? If you were around last fall, we spent a whole lot of time talking about your one life. You have one life to live. Who's the one life that you're investing in? And I couldn't help even thinking about that this past week as we, as a church, were scattered all over, hanging out with our neighbors and our friends, 4th of July, maybe hanging out with family. I bet some of us in this space spent time with our one even this past week. How are things going? Are you being Daniel? to a world who desperately needs to see Jesus in and through you. How are things going in that area? Probably a good time for a checkup. Nebuchadnezzar was a man filled with pride. He was so proud. As we keep reading the story, he had a statue made that was 60 feet tall of his likeness. And he invited, every time music played, the whole kingdom to bow down and worship that statue. Worship him? Finally, God said, I've had enough. He makes the decision to bring Nebuchadnezzar down off of his high horse. Look at this. I'm going to spend the rest of the time in Daniel chapter 4. Look at verse 37. Those who walk in pride, God is able to humble. And the Cliff's Notes version of the story I want to share with you right now of chapter 4 out of Daniel, God humbles Nebuchadnezzar. God gives Nebuchadnezzar another dream. It details his fall and his demise. Nebuchadnezzar wasn't able to interpret the dream, so he calls his friend Daniel again. The Spirit of God is on Daniel, so he could interpret the dream. The revelation was shocking. The Bible actually says this, describing Daniel's reaction. The next verse, in verse 19, Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, was greatly perplexed for a time, and his thoughts terrified him. It would you as well if you had to speak the meaning of this dream directly to power. Nebuchadnezzar's dream revealed that he would be given the mind of an animal and driven from power to live with the beasts of the field and eat grass like oxen for a period of seven years. Jake referenced that in his setup there. What he didn't reference is that this is an actual diagnosis. I did a little digging on this. There's a mental illness known as zoanthropy or boanthropy. And sometimes we even see it in modern times where a person thinks of themselves as an animal and then acts like one. This might be the disease that Nebuchadnezzar had. Well, following seven years of living like an animal, he comes to his senses. And we read again there at the end of that story in Daniel chapter 4. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven. My sanity was restored, and I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. Now, that's the Cliff's Notes version of the story. Let's see if we can grab some application, grab some more insights and a little deeper dive into the story, shall we? Remember I said four, four, and four. Let me share with you now four jerky steps. Let's call it this, Pride's Progression. And as we look at the story of Nebuchadnezzar, could I invite you to go deeper into your own heart? Where, how are you wrestling with pride? I believe anybody can experience this cycle of pride. 
Leaders oftentimes struggle with this. I know this is a leader-rich environment. Look inward. Is there some pride that you need to wrestle with? Four stages, pride's progression. Here's the first one. As we look at the story of Nebuchadnezzar, it starts with success. He is successful. And I'm looking around at a bunch of type A overachievers that live in Hamilton County, and I bet some of you can relate to a little bit of his story as well. Daniel chapter 4, verse 4 says this. I, Nebuchadnezzar, or we call him Chad Nebuchadnezzar, was living in my palace in comfort and in prosperity. This is an understatement, actually, as I understand ancient Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom was no small accomplishment. Uh, Babylon was actually known for extensive building projects. It had a gigantic palace. It actually had a thing called the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. These were considered actually one of the seven ancient wonders of the ancient world. When Nebuchadnezzar says comfort and prosperity, he's probably underselling it. He was a successful dude. I can't help but think, even by proximity, some of us, have you ever traveled recently outside of Hamilton County and looked around and said, where are there sidewalks? There are not 300 roundabouts in this community. What's going on here? I mean, we have proximity even to some success. And if we're not careful, even as we look around, that kind of leaches into our soul. You could drive just a few miles south, north, east, or west of here and see communities that don't have the infrastructure that we get to enjoy every day. And I wonder if even by proximity, if living around success, if that works its way into our soul, just like the folks who lived in Babylon probably struggled with this as well. This success led to the second stage in the cycle of pride, pride's progression. Can I show that to you right now? It comes with a warning. First, there's success. Second, there's a warning. In the very next verse, Nebuchadnezzar says this. One night I had a dream that frightened me. I saw visions that terrified me as I lay in my bed. He had a dream. Nobody can interpret it. So he calls Daniel. If you want to look a little bit deeper into chapter 4 of Daniel, by the way, I would encourage you today, get quiet, get alone somewhere and read through chapter 4 of Daniel. There's a lot of details there. Let me show you just a couple of the highlights. He's laying in his bed. He dreamed. He sees a tree, a successful tree, a big tree. It was tall and strong, reached high, the whole world to see. It was alive. It had green leaves. It's loaded with fruit. It was a productive tree. Wild animals and birds were enjoying its comfort. All the world was fed from this tree. This tree maybe has reasons for pride, right? As I lay there dreaming, I saw a messenger. God is speaking to me. And what does he say? He shouts, cut down the tree. What? Lop off its branches. What? Shake its leaves and scatter its fruit. Chase the wild animals from its shade and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump and the roots in the ground. What in the world is going on here? Bound with a band of iron and bronze and surrounded by tender grass. This is Nebuchadnezzar's story telling. Let's skip ahead just a few verses. Daniel responds. He quotes some of the king's dream, and then he gives a little bit of application. Now let him be drenched with the dew of heaven, and let him live with the wild animals among the plants of the field. For seven periods of time, remember, seven years, let him have the mind of a wild animal, 
pride, downfall, instead of the mind of a human. For there, this has been decreed by the messengers, it's commanded by the holy ones, so that everyone may know that the Most High rules over the kingdoms of the world. He gives them to anyone he chooses, even to the lowliest of people. What's the second step in a progression of pride? Warning. The dashboard lights are blinking just a little bit. Daniel hears the dream. He's scared. Then he literally has to speak truth to power. Literally, he looks power in the eyes. Verse 22, he says this, that tree that you just dreamed about, your majesty, that's you. Warning. God is swinging an ax, Nebuchadnezzar. He's going to cut you down. Does anybody else have a Johnny Cash song in their brain right now? Go tell that long-tongued liar. Go tell that midnight rider. Tell the rambler, the gambler, the backbiter. Tell him God's going to cut him down. You can run for a long time. You can run for a long time. Perhaps you remember this song. Sooner or later, God's going to cut you down. By the way, I, this is a bit of a divergent path. But have you ever seen that, one of that last video, music videos that Johnny Cash produced before he died? He redid the Trent Reznor song from Nine Inch Nails. It's called Hurt. It was interspersed with all kinds of imagery, communion imagery. We're going to spend some time in communion here in just a moment. It was filled with language and even imagery of repentance. An old man looking back on his life and saying, I was filled with pride I'm repenting. I'm following God. If you haven't watched that music video, there's some homework for you. I would encourage you to check that video out later today. Going back to Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel is looking power in the eyes, and he's saying, you're going to be driven from society. You're going to live like an animal. How long is it going to last? Well, Daniel says it this way, until... Until you learn that the Most High rules over the kingdoms of the world and gives them to anyone he chooses. God is in control, not you, king. And this isn't a short-term solution. Seven years of misery await Nebuchadnezzar. Then Daniel issues this warning to the king. He says, King Nebuchadnezzar, please accept my advice. Warning, warning, warning. Stop sinning. Do what is right. Break from your wicked past. Be merciful to the poor. Perhaps then you will continue to prosper. Unfortunately, the king ignores Daniel's advice, and that leads then to stage three in pride's progression. Success, warning, deception. As we look at these, could you do a little bit of autobiographic work in your own heart? Twelve months after the dream, Nebuchadnezzar finds himself admiring his royal palace in Babylon. He looked out across the city and he said, look at this great city of Babylon by my own mighty power. I have built this beautiful city as my royal residence to display my majestic splendor. Did you count how many times in those short verses he used me, mine, my? Well, three Let's look at him. My mighty power, my royal residence, my majestic splendor. Let's bring that and explore what would that look like for us today. Maybe my mighty power could be all about my abilities. 
There are some God-given things that God gave each one of us that are tools for us to use to advance his kingdom. But if we look at them and see them selfishly through the lens of me, mine, my, my abilities, uh-uh-uh, they're on loan from God. Why would I place pride in that? What else? My royal residence. My stuff? Now stop and think about that for a second. Do you have some things that are going to rust, rot, eventually? Well, they don't make the cut for eternity. How much pride do you place even in stuff that doesn't even really matter long term? Mine. What about this one? My majestic splendor. Is there some pride of reputation that God would call each of us to repent of today? How do people look at me? What do people think of me? Pride. Can you see how this worms its way into your soul? As we think about jerks of the Bible, this is a pretty important one to study. Me, my, this can consume our thoughts, and pride can turn your success into a monument, if we're not careful, of self-worship. That's important for us to recognize. Nebuchadnezzar does not heed Daniel's warning. Pride continues continues to consume his heart. It leads to the final stage in the cycle of pride. Here we go. Success, warning, deception, downfall. And if you'll notice, if we don't break the cycle, it does continue to repeat itself. This next verse is quite remarkable. Daniel 4, chapter 31, with these words, while they were still in his mouth, a voice called down from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, this message is for you. You are no longer ruler of this kingdom. Immediately, everything Daniel said came true. The king was driven from his kingdom, and he had to live like a wild animal for seven years. Nebuchadnezzar's experience with the cycle of pride isn't unique. Countless people have experienced this devastation. Have you ever heard the name Chuck Colson? I've heard this story from multiple angles. I reread it again this past week. In his book, Seven Men, the author Eric Metaxas tells the story of Chuck Colson and his prideful demise. He was, if you don't recognize his name, he was wrapped up with President Nixon the Watergate scandal, he was a part of this. He was a very intelligent man, advisor to the king, if you will. After Chuck's and, uh, Chuck Colson was let go, he began to rebuild his law practice. He was a lawyer. This discussion uh, led him to seek out a gentleman named Tom Phillips. He was CEO at the time of the Raytheon Company. He was hoping to land Phillips, Tom, as a client. And after their, uh, during their initial meeting, rather, uh, Chuck was surprised to hear Tom describe the emptiness that he, Tom, felt having so much success. The week before, actually, that had led him to surrender his life to Jesus Christ at a Billy Graham crusade. Just one week before that conversation. Before their discussion wrapped up, Colson turned the conversation to the Watergate scandal, and quickly he cast blame on others. He justified his own actions, but, well, Tom wasn't having it. He challenged Colson, insisting that pride birthed in his heart 
brought Colson and the rest of the administration into the mess that they were in. Well, eventually, Chuck Colson's sins caught up with him, right? You do the crime, you do the time. He was sentenced to prison, and he traveled all four stages of the cycle of pride, success, warning, deception, and finally, downfall. Similar stories are told over and over in history. Perhaps you know one yourself where pride devastates lives, which begs the question, how do I break the progression of pride in my life? I'm so glad you asked. The text tells us it begins by looking up, by raising your eyes to heaven. Daniel chapter 4, verse 34 says this, after this time has passed, I, Nebuchadnezzar, looked up to heaven. My sanity returned. I praised and worshiped the Most High and honored the one who lives forever. His rule is everlasting and his kingdom is eternal. Do you see the antidote to pride, humility, right there in those verses? You're not God. You're not the supreme ruler. You're definitely not the Most High. Your kingdom, your business, your accomplishments aren't eternal, they're temporary. Only God's are eternal. Psalm 8, the writer of the 8th Psalm puts it this way, who is man that you're mindful of him? When we put our perspective on God, it restores a right place of humility. I love this quote by R.C. Sproul. Check this out. The grand difference between a human being and a supreme being is precisely this. Apart from God, I cannot exist. Apart from me, God can exist. God does not need me in order for him to be. I do need God in order for me to be. If we can wrap our brains around that quote, that is an anecdote to pride. Let's go back to Chuck Colson, shall we? Second visit to Tom Phillips' house. Tom, I think Chuck was his one. You have one life to invest. Who's the one life you're investing in? He takes this moment to share just honestly what he's walking through right now in his life. He pulls out a book he's reading. It happens to be written by, written by the great author C.S. Lewis. He's great, not because of his accomplishments, but he allowed his abilities to be bridled and used by the great God to speak truth to all of us the book Mere Christianity. He opens up to chapter 8, and it's titled, get this, The Great Sin, Pride. And he unpacks what pride is. And as he listens, Colson slowly realized that his personal pride had devastated his life. He leaves the house. He's sitting in this car, and he's sobbing. It's repentance. He was going this way, he stopped, and he turned around, and he starts going this way. And he prays the prayer, God, I don't know how to find you, but I'm going to try. I'm not much the way that I am right now, but somehow I want to give myself over to you. And then he picks up the book himself, and he reads that book, Mere Christianity, and his mind is finally convinced. He surrenders his life to Jesus Christ, and during his time in prison, you do the crime, you still have to do the time, Right? Sin has consequences. He still was sentenced to prison, even though he gave his life to Jesus. But during that season, he began to view spiritual renewal in Christ as the key to solving the crime problem. I've actually met prisoners 
who know Jesus now. I've talked with them in prisons, and they have given their life to Jesus as a direct result of the ministry that Chuck Colson launched during that season of his life. It's called Prison Fellowship International. It's in over 125 countries in the world. When Chuck Colson humbled himself and acknowledged Jesus Christ as Lord, God restored him his life and gave him a new ministry. King Nebuchadnezzar's story concludes with a similar tone. When he finally humbled himself, God restored his sanity and his kingdom and Nebuchadnezzar said this in Daniel chapter 4, verse 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and glorify and honor the king of heaven. All his acts are just and true, and he is able to humble the proud. Boy, that's an understatement, isn't it? Everybody wants to be great. People build names for themselves, and they have monuments erected for their names. Sometimes these monuments only exist in their head. <laughs> but true greatness is void of pride. Let me say it this way. Pride builds impressive monuments. It can. Sometimes it does. But if you want to make a, distance, a difference for eternity, humility builds inspiring men and women. The kind of people that you're inspired by and you want to follow, humility builds inspiring people. Might I encourage you, kick pride to the curb. Lean into humility and see what God can do in you and through you. Because let's be clear, pride is a sin. It is. Let's call it what it is. It is a sin. It's putting yourself on the throne where God should be. Merriam-Webster defines pride as a feeling that you are more important or better than other people, maybe even including God. I can't help but think about this, this whole time that Daniel, remember, in a world of Nebuchadnezzar's, God is calling you to be a Daniel. This whole time he is ministering to the king speaking truth to power. I can't help but think that there were some verses about pride that were rolling through his brain that were written before he was born, and likely he carried them that almost 1,000 miles into exile in Babylon. Verses like Proverbs chapter 8, verse 13, to fear the Lord is to hate evil. I hate pride and arrogance. How about this, Proverbs 16, verse 5, the Lord detests all the pride of the heart. They're going to go punished. There are severe consequences to pride. Proverbs 16, verse 18, pride goes before destruction. Haughty spirit goes before a fall. Can't you just picture that, a haughty spirit? Do you see that sometimes on the countenance of people you know? Do you see it sometimes when you look in the mirror? Proverbs 21, verse 4, haughty eyes and a proud heart. The unplowed field of the wicked. I love that. The soil has not been turned over. The, the good work, heart work has not been done yet. These things produce sin. Do you see a person, Proverbs 26, verse 12, as wise in their own eyes? Well, there is more hope for a fool than for them. The Bible is filled with stories about jerks who struggle with pride. We looked at Samson a few weeks ago. His pride caught up with him. Conversely, the Apostle Peter, we studied him earlier in the year. He struggled with pride. Oh, Jesus, I wouldn't 
betray you. I mean, look at me. Look at my strength, my ability. And Jesus said, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me. He's devastated. He's brought to his knees. And Jesus restores him. Pride broke Peter's heart, but Peter used that as a valuable lesson then and became the cornerstone of the church. I love this in, in James chapter 4. It says this, he gives more grace. God gives grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Well, how in the world do you do that? Well, remember I said four, four, and four. Can I quickly give you four action steps? Let's call them wisdom steps to break pride's power. These are simple but profound. Step one, acknowledge the problem. Any good counselor will tell you that step one is acknowledging that there is a problem. I suspect that all of us, to some degree, struggle with some layer of pride. Number one, acknowledge the problem. Number two, deliberately make choices that will hurt your pride. Put yourself in places where you will be humbled. If you're excellent at something, maybe intentionally do something that you're not very good at. I like to play basketball. Maybe I should spend some time on the tennis court and just see what kind of humility takes place there. It would be ugly, right? How about this one? Number three, guard your heart then. Once you have put yourself in a place where your pride will be hurt, that's a good thing, then you actually need to continue to practice that. Continue to guard your heart. James chapter 4, verse 8 says, Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Guard your heart against pride. Four, this is important. We're going to lean in on this right now, actually. Pray to overcome pride. Acknowledge the problem. Make choices that's going to hurt your pride. Guard your heart and then pray. And notice this is a cycle as well because we should continually struggle against pride. It has a way of worming its way into our hearts. I want to wrap the sermon time of our, sermon, our service together up by giving an application step, an opportunity to do, to practice that cycle right there, specifically the prayer piece. We do this every week. We call it communion. And when you came in, you probably found those elements sitting on the seat. Would you grab those right now? Hold them in your hands. If you're newer to our church, we do this every week. And we do it as a moment to acknowledge who Jesus is in relationship to who we are. We've been doing this as a church for a long time. Fifth century, one of the early leaders of the church, Augustine, we call him St. Augustine, he wrote a book called Confessions. He says this, when he's ordaining a bishop, this is what he would say, and this is the quote, pride is a great vice. And the first of vices, the beginning, the origin, and the cause of all sins. Is it possible that the sins that you committed even this past week somehow pride putting yourself in front of others? How about this? Pride is the desire sometimes to replace God with oneself. Can I encourage you? Kick that out of your life right now. 
we're in, the, in a travel season. We uh, go and see places during this time of year. I was reading this past week that the Grand Canyon is one of those great destinations in our country. And if you've never been, I would encourage you, there's something about staring out across that vast expanse. I ran it years ago. Oh my goodness, you talk about kicking my tail and giving me humility. It's filled with false summits. As you're climbing out, it's like you think you're getting out. Oh, nope, I'm not quite there yet. Oh, nope, I'm not there yet. There's something about looking out across that vast expanse. It reminds me that I'm pretty small, even insignificant. The creator God of the universe who spoke that into existence. He wants me to do the opposite of Narcissus who stared down into a pool and caught up with their own reflection, fall in love with self. No, 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 look around, look what God has created. Be reminded of how big God is, eternal God is. Is there time, is there space even right now to submit to God? What do we say in James chapter four, verse eight? Draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. What is it for you right now in this moment you need to confess? Maybe it begins with pride. I'm going to pray. We're going to give you space to do your thing. You do just that. When you're ready, you take those communion elements into yourself and think about Jesus' body broken and blood shed, what he's done what you've done. Would you pray with me?